Let us begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Joho Kraft, coming to you from KKXX Studios, Chico Life Radio 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is great to be with you another Monday evening where we continue our reflections into church history. And uh, typically from one week to the next, what we do is we examine one of the great Christian thinkers um, that have really helped us better understand our faith. Well, as I have been promising, we have finally arrived at that point where we can uh, get into the Crusades a little bit. Um, we are going to spend at least three weeks, if not four weeks, uh, in the Crusades. But if we are going to do the Crusades, what we must first do is offer up a kind of prequel, if you will. Uh, so often we talk about the Crusades, and we just jump into the First Crusade and the Second Crusade, and whether it was right or wrong, and what were the motives, um, why were we doing this or that. Well, to be able to answer any and all of those questions, what you first have to do is really get into what was taking place before, and at the same time, really get into what Islam and, and the Muslim faith is all about. And I will be doing this with both uh, John O'Hare and George Wing, who you both know. So, John, great to have you with me this evening. Thank you, Joe. Nice to be here. And George, great to have you with me another evening. Praise the Lord. So, guys, uh, the Crusades, you know, I thought we would be well served to get into some of uh, the questions that are underneath the Crusades, and by that I mean to dispel some of the fallacies that come with an absence of understanding the importance of history and the historical context to which, of course, the Crusades come to us. Well, in history, we cannot take uh, something like the Crusades as a discrete event. We have to see it in its proper historical context, and that unfortunately is what is lacking or missing in much of the current banter here in the news media, and even programs on history, like uh, National Geographic or the History Channel, yeah. are actually very distorted, uh, perhaps even deceptive. Most historians nowadays who study the Middle Ages are in almost universal agreement about the Crusades, that they were not the evil things that they were portrayed on in Hollywood or even in academia uh, some years ago, that in about the past... 30 or so years, mm -hmm. research has been uh, far more, shall we say, favorable to the Crusaders and what they were trying to do. Mm -hmm. That's right, John. And you know, guys, it, as we're talking about this just in the outset, it's to remember in our own faith, we are not going to appreciate, say, for example, sacred scripture unless we get into the intention of the author. Well, what is the intention of the author? Well, <laughs> to get behind why the author was writing what he was writing, you have to understand the cultural milieu, the historical context, the circumstances. Again, uh, George, some of the things you were talking about, it's to appreciate uh, the story uh, from the time period that it came out from. And this is what we are about here on this radio program, to appreciate the Crusades for what they are versus what they are not, based upon that historical context. Very important. And given the fact, you guys, that we are talking about Christianity and uh, Islam, I thought it would be important, before we even get into some of the historical pieces, to really get into 
what makes us distinct? Uh, what separates us? You know, there are some who just kind of look at the Islam faith as, you know, another branch of the same Abrahamic tree, and they are a religion of peace. Or maybe they might be more critical of uh, the Islam faith, but in the end, they are a valuable partner. Well, that's all fine and well, but the reality is there's some untruth in that. And what we are here about this evening is to speak to that truth, which, first and foremost, is understanding what lies at the heart of who we are and what lies at the heart of the Islam doctrine. Now, guys, before I go any further, I really want to make the point that I know many Muslims who want nothing to do with the violence that we see today, for sure. Uh, But that being said, uh, what we are about this evening is going deeper, unpacking, and getting at what lies at the heart of what the Crusades were about, and to some extent, how that impacts our understanding of what is going on today. So, all that being said, when you go to the word Islam itself, what does that word mean? Submission, right? Voluntary submission to God. You look at the word Islam, the Salah, peace. So, you look at that at first glance and you say to yourself, well, the Christian faith, we submit to God, we freely submit to God, and we enter into this shalom, right? What's the difference? You look at that and it's all the same. Well, the difference is father, son, which is the genius of Christianity, and master, slave, which defines the Islam faith. We think about peace. Well, what does the Quran say about peace? Subdue your foe. Peace is achieved according to the Quran through warfare and the subduing of your foe. Peace in Christianity is about covenant harmony with God. And it's just not the absence of war based upon a subduing, if you will, but it's more about the spiritual poise that comes with being in covenant harmony with God. It's a question of means and end. And that's very important when you start thinking about what makes these two uh, faiths so unique and so different. So with that, John, maybe a a word about uh, some of the key historical pieces, and that'll really get our discussion going this evening. Mohammed was born in 570, died around 632. He lived for 62 years. And one of his last words I have written down here was, I was ordered to fight all men until they say, there is no God but Allah. Eighty years later, a lot of the Middle East, up to the Dardanelles, Alexandria, and North Africa had Muslims were there. Not that the people there had converted. That took, oh, five, well, maybe 250 or more years before 50% were Islam. But that was a huge change in your world map when the Muslim religion takes over areas that had been Christian, quasi-Christian, or a variant thereof. Yes, during the time of Muhammad, the classical Greco-Roman civilization was still intact along the coast of North Africa, uh, the Middle East. So that's the eastern end of the Mediterranean Sea, and of course through uh, Greece and Italy. And um, this was a culture unified by Roman law. Now, the empire, the Roman Empire, had been split into an eastern and a western segment. The eastern segment would have been, of course, in the eastern end of the Mediterranean, and the political center would be uh, Byzantium, uh, later called Constantinople. 
were called Constantinople at, actually at the time of Muhammad, and um, would have been ruled by an emperor who was a descendant of the Caesars and defended by legions, which many of them had uh, a lineage going back hundreds of years. These are uh, Roman military regiments, divisions. Mm-hmm. Now, the Byzantine Greeks, okay, because that was the Greek end of the empire, had experienced warfare with the empire of Persia, actually predating even the Roman Empire. And you know the story of Alexander the Great, but prior to that, Leonidas, the Spartan, the 300, the Athenians and the Spartans and and other Greeks in league to defend their homeland against the Persians. Mm -hmm. So there have been hundreds of years of warfare between Greeks and Persians. Near the end of Muhammad's life, the Byzantines and the Persians were again fighting it out. The war left both empires exhausted, financially and militarily. Then the Black Plague sweeps through the Eastern Mediterranean. I don't know if the Persians were affected by this, but the Byzantines certainly were, and I believe it's one in three died. Mm -hmm. Muhammad dies, and the first caliph takes to the sword and on horseback to spread this religion of Islam. So one of the reasons why the Arabs were able to conquer the Middle East and North Africa and then move on to Persia mm. within a hundred years was because both of these empires were severely weakened by war and then by disease. Mm-hmm. So you have this energetic new religion promulgated by a man that had used the sword, Muhammad, to spread the religion himself mm-hmm. and this is not only in the Quran, but also in two other very important sources of Islamic doctrine, the Hadith, which are the anecdotal accounts of, of Muhammad and the life of Muhammad and his sayings, but also something called the Sirah, which is the biography of Muhammad. So warfare is the way in which Islam spread through North Africa and through the Middle East. Now, recently in Iraq, ISIS gave the terms to the locals, the Christians mm-hmm. and Yazidis and others. You can either submit to Islam, you can remain here. There are three options. You're given three options, and this is in Islamic tradition. You can either submit to Islam, become a Muslim, you can pay the jizra, that is the tax uh, that non-believers pay to the Islamic State or Islamic authorities, or you can face execution. So you're given three options. Mm -hmm. And the Christians, to their heroic credit, either left the area so as not to pay the Jizra or face death. But this is a very, very old pattern stretching back to the the founding of the religion of Islam, Mm -hmm. which, Joe, you correctly pointed out, does not mean peace, it means submission. And in this case, submission means you take the beat down and... When you whimper, then we know you've submitted. That's what it is. Yeah, there's no question here (laughs) that when you start talking about the Prophet Muhammad, he grew up in the brutal ancient world of Arabia. And uh, Muhammad himself uh, was an Arabian warlord. Mm -hmm. And what he did, as you were speaking to, George, left an enduring stamp uh, on the religion he founded. And... Uh, Since his time, you know, (laughs) jihad, as you so well explained, George, has been an earmark of the Muslim faith. This religion spread very rapidly from the point of view of square miles. 
uh, by about 635, they had taken Damascus, big city. By 638, they had taken Jerusalem. That took a little bit of time. They allowed the Christians to stay. They kicked out the Jews. In 640, Alexandria, the guy in Alexandria, I think his name was Cyrus, he just surrendered the city. Alexandria was a huge taking. Remember, Cairo wasn't really a city that came later. Alexandria was taking the biggest city in the Christian East, and then they go and take the rest of North Africa. This is a lot of land. Now, they start to go towards Constantinople, but he's unable to cross the Dardanelles. Thank heavens, otherwise we ourselves might be Muslim. Oh, yes. Now, they will take Constantinople later. That's when we get into the Crusades. But this was a huge spread. Why were they able to spread so fast? Several things. Many of the Byzantians, the Orthodox Christians out of Constantinople, had hired soldiers. Their own people weren't really doing the fighting. And so the uh, Muslims that they were fighting against were much more dedicated. Another thing is the Arabs made much better use of camels than the Christians did, and they kept the horses in the background and only used the horses when they were needed. Um, military strategy and leadership was much better for the, uh, for the uh, Muslims than it was for the Christians, and therefore you had this rapid spread. And with it came the, you submit to God or you pay the tax or you're executed, and it, it really spread, and you can't accommodate it. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, you can't live side by side. And mm-hmm. we take a look at the spread of Christianity, the Romans weren't that way toward, uh, there were many, many martyrs. I mean, uh, the seed of Christianity is the blood of martyrs, mm-hmm. but it wasn't quite that violent and that extreme. Anyway, but this is what happened. Now, mm-hmm. eventually, the Muslims began to fight amongst themselves. Sunni Shia, this began around 675, around in there. Their internal fighting stopped the spread, but then it continued. But my whole point of this is it spread rapidly, so rapidly, and it was so extreme that now we have something that you have to be concerned about. One other last little thing. They cross Gibraltar into Spain. They go right up through Spain, and they were stopped by Charles Martel and the Battle of Tours or the Battle of Poitiers, whatever one you want to mm-hmm. call it. It was at the, I think, the Vienne and the Sunni rivers. And this is only about 50 miles south of Paris. That's where this battle took place. Now, Charles Martel was a very good soldier. On his horses, he put a saddle with a back on the saddle and spurs, so therefore his soldiers could use a lance and a sword and swing it, whereas the Muslims were bareback. Mm-hmm. Okay, that victory pushed the Muslims from France back into Spain on the, in the Pyrenees, and that war went on until 1492. So that's how the spread got stopped, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. it was a huge spread at the beginning, and then it slowed down. Mm-hmm. Now, by the time we get to the Crusades, they're crossing over into Constantinople again. The conquest of Egypt by the Muslims had a tremendous economic impact on the Mediterranean because Egypt was like the breadbasket of the Roman Empire. Yeah. And um, so the, and the taking of Alexandria, which is the port city there of Egypt, from which the grain would have been exported. There was free commerce along the Mediterranean in Roman times and in Byzantine times. But, of course, with the advent of Muslim control in North Africa, piracy becomes a huge problem, as we see today on Mm -hmm. the the Somali coast. Mm -hmm. Also, in Indonesia, the archipelago there in Indonesia and Malaysia, uh, piracy is a problem. But um, in Islamic law, it's it's admissible to take captives to raid from non-Muslims and to you know, steal their property. Mm-hmm. And um, 
Of course, our own country, the United States, our first overseas military uh, venture was fighting the Barbary pirates along the coast of Tunisia. And here this uh, young country happened to have some state-of-the-art warships at the time, although very not many of them were deployed to the Mediterranean by one of our first presidents to, uh, to counter the um, actions of, of Muslim pirates there. Mm -hmm. You know, guys, as we are talking here, I could not reinforce enough, and I, I think it's striking our audience a little bit, how important it is to put on the lenses of what was going on, not only during the time of Muhammad, but certainly in those first two, three, four hundred years, and why they were moving the way they were moving, and the kind of impact they were having upon society, upon culture. And even, George, as you talk about, you know, the infancy of of our country, of our nation, what we ought to remember is that just this didn't, you know, just poof, pop up from nowhere. No, it has a history. It has an origin. And if we're going to understand why we do what we do, even today, 2015, as it relates to, say, Syria or Iran or Iraq, it goes all the way back to the kind of thing that we are talking about now. And this is why it's so important to get our parameters on history and of course, as we talk about it within the context of the Crusades, go to the origins and the beginning. You know, when people ask me about the Crusades, the question is generally asked critically. My response is, well, it's a pushback that was 400 years overdue. I would agree with that, George. Yeah. This has been said earlier, but popular culture has really been hard on the Christian side of the Crusade. Bill Clinton, two months after 9-11, makes an anti-Christian crusader comments at Georgetown University. The anti-Catholic comedian Garrison Keillor, from Loke Wobegon fame, has been hugely critical of Urban II and those crusades. He may be funny, but he doesn't know history. Yeah. And Clinton may have been a decent politician or whatever, but he doesn't know history. Yeah. Well, we saw this too with President Obama's comments at the National Prayer Breakfast, attempting to draw some sort of equivalency between jihad um, and the Crusades, the you know jihad occurring right now. Mm -hmm, well, mm -hmm. of course, it's been occurring for fourteen hundred years, <laughs> and the Crusades, an event that took place uh, several hundred years ago. So there's no equivalency. You can't. It's just not the same thing. Mm -hmm. You have here a religion where warfare is built into the religion. It's actually an act of faith to take up the sword to spread the the religion. And if, if anyone has any questions about this, I would refer them to the Jihad Watch website. That's Robert Spencer. Mm -hmm. But also to um, Political Islam with Dr. Bill Warner. Mm -hmm. And both can be found on YouTube as well. You can listen to their talks. Mm -hmm. That Robert Spencer you just mentioned, George, put out a book recently, Not Peace, But a Sword. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, right. Not Peace, But a Sword. And... Uh, you know, he is an important figure, a figure that uh, the likes of uh, Fox News, BBC, even CNN, and so many others have interviewed to gain insight into just not Islam, but also also the Crusades. So you, it, he's an important figure for sure. And what's more, guys, as, as Robert Spencer notes, he doesn't get into this to encourage hatred or, or bigotry or even some kind of alarmist attitude. Now, he just gets into the history for what it is, and for that matter, into the nature of, of doctrine for what it is. In fact, in that uh, book, he gets into what makes uh, Christianity distinct from Islam, and Islam is distinct from Christianity. Yes, we might have this or that that is similar, 
But before we engage in those discussions, it really is important to be able to pull back and see things more for what they are, because everything rests on the truth. And by that, I mean, what is? There are also a number of converts from Islam. Walid Shabbat is Shabbat is one of them, Palestinian Muslim who found the light of Jesus Christ through his Mexican Catholic wife. You can hear them speak to these these issues. And of course, these are people that have really had to struggle. They were raised in Islamic culture. They have deep family ties. And yet, at some point, they discover that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Mm-hmm. Amen. And I would like to mention the word dehemas. I came across this when I was studying this. Kind of means a slave, right. mm-hmm. and th- these were conquered people by the Arabs. Dimi, I think I've yeah. heard of Dimi. Yeah, yeah, yeah Dimi. Right. Mm-hmm. Dimi. Oh, sorry. Mm-hmm. It is from many of these Dimis that a lot of what is called Arabic culture came from. For example, the Arabic numeral system was a Hindu mm-hmm. discovery, right. but they got the Hindus. And the the great medical center uh, was uh, Nestorians, I think, were the great. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were Dimis, and and they were. Uh, they they did some excellent medical work, but in 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 the Muslim geography, but they they were not you know, they were they were dimmies. One of the big myths surrounding the Islamization of North Africa, the Middle East, extending then into Mesopotamia, and uh, into India, was this uh, a golden age, Islamic golden age. And you also hear it uh, centering in Baghdad, but you also hear about an Islamic golden age uh, in Spain. Okay, that is a myth. Mm-hmm. Correct. The, um, for one thing, the Arab people had no high culture of their own. Muhammad and the Umayyad tribe lived on the outskirts of the great civilization, the classical Greco-Roman civilization. What skill they learned in terms of statecraft and architecture and building, these were all things that they took or borrowed from the classical civilization that they conquered. Mm-hmm. And as John's pointed out, it was non-Muslims that were making the contributions. As a matter of fact, uh, according to Dr. Bill Warner, some 90% of the classical texts that fell into their hands when they conquered Baghdad were destroyed. So this business about people of European descent were dependent upon the, uh, the Muslims for having preserved the classical culture. Well, no, they didn't. Um, the translations were made by Christians okay, or Jews, Uh, They're not made by Arabs. Islam has very little regard for the historic past. That's a time of barbarism. Mm -hmm. And we see that again in the Middle East. This business of ISIS planting bulldozers in ancient sites and bulldozing up Mm. historic artifacts. We have the specter of the Taliban in in Afghanistan blowing up uh, ancient Buddhist monuments and other monuments of destroying the precious artifacts in the museum there in Kabul, Afghanistan. And this is something that's very, very old. When the Muslim army swept into India, there was a great Buddhist university, Nalanda University in the north of India. They slaughtered all of the monks, and they also burned what was perhaps the greatest library in antiquity. Mm -hmm. And that was the, the library, the Nalanda library, that was destroyed as well. So once again, these are ancients, these are members of a decadent culture that we have conquered, and we will destroy their past. There's no going back, and there's no memory of the great cultural achievements that were uh, made by these people. That's right, George. Uh, so you guys, I think we're at a point now where we can really begin, at the very least in its infancy, a discussion 
uh, on what was going on behind the First Crusade. Let me just go to November the 27th, 1095, when Pope Urban II gave a speech at Clermont in France. Thousands upon thousands were there. He was 53 years old, young, vigorous, and the person who was the head of the Byzantine Empire in Constantinople had written to a count in somewhere in France, and Pope Urban II, as part of his speech, read portions of the letter, and here is a portion of the letter. They, the Muslims, they destroy the altars after having defiled them with their uncleanness. They circumcise the Christians, and the blood of the circumcision they either pour on the altars or pour onto the vases of the baptismal font. When they wish to torture people by a base death, they perforate their navels, and dragging forth the extremity of the intestines, bind it to a stake. Then with flogging, they lead the victims around until the viscera, having gushed forth, the victim falls prostrate on the ground. What shall I say about the abominable rape of women? To speak of it is worse than to be silent. On whom, therefore, is the labor of avenging these wrongs and recovering this territory incumbent, if not upon you? Mm. Now, that was part of Urban's speech. There was thousands in attendance. The speech has been copied and written. This was part of his remarks, and this is what he was responding to. Well, he's appealing to Christian charity, ultimately. In other words, how can we stand by and allow our Christian brothers and sisters to be oppressed in such a fashion? Oftentimes, the Crusades are painted as, well, these are greedy Western Europeans uh, wanting to go into pillage Muslim lands for financial gain. And when in reality, the initial impulse that caused Urban II to proclaim the First Crusade was to free those lands from Muslim oppression. And John illustrated that with the, with the, the letter there from the emperor, Byzantine emperor, recounting some of the atrocities that he had heard of or perhaps had witnessed himself in whatever lands he was able to recover. And this, again, is so important, you guys, because this gives us a stronger historical context. And for our listening audience, this really is invaluable because it's just not projecting what we think we know, but really coming to a deeper understanding of the why behind uh, the First Crusade. And we will have the opportunity in upcoming weeks to really explore even more, not only some of the things we touched upon this evening, but really what was going on in that first crusade and to some extent even even the second crusade. And what we do discover is that there are holy motives, as you just spoke to George and, and you as well, John. So all very important as we begin and really continue uh, this study. I don't know if you guys have any closing thoughts by way of wrap-up. Just to mention, April 25th marked the 100th anniversary mm, mm. of the beginning of the Armenian Genocide. Yes. Now, these are the Ottoman Turks under uh, the Muslim Sultan initiating a genocide. A million to a million and a half Armenians lost their lives. They lost vast amount of, of uh, territory. Uh, Armenia itself today is a tiny little landlocked country in the Middle East. They were the first Christian kingdom, and they were slaughtered specifically because they are Christian people. You know, what, what we're talking about here, about the, the context of the Crusades and is in the prequel to the Crusades, like the 400 years leading up to it, this sort of historic pattern continues to repeat itself through history. And the latest big one, having been the Armenian Genocide, but we're seeing actually today in our own time, mm -hmm. this extermination of Christians in the Middle East. We see it in Africa with Nigeria. These are people affected with the same sort of religious sentiments derived from the Quran, from the Hadith, from the Sirah, from 
Islamic tradition. One last little thing. We talked about the fathers of the church a long time ago. A lot of what they said holds true in Christianity today. The same thing that was spoken about in uh, Islam back in 700 holds true today. Mm-hmm. Submission and only one God but Allah. Mm-hmm. Thank you for the gift of your time. Much appreciated. Um, and very much looking forward to uh, the next few weeks. Let us close with a word of prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. All glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen, and God bless you. Thanks for listening to Seeds of Truth, heard every evening, Monday through Friday at 6.30 p.m. If you'd like to hear this program or find out how you can help support Seeds of Truth, the website is joeholcraft.org.